Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So I have here in my office um, Harun Ula, who was well. Why don't you say what what you what you was and what you is? That's a good way to put it, Nick. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. And uh, I was working at State Department for nine years. The State just, Department for nine years. And just and, left. And you just left. And you just have a, a new book out called called Digital World War. That uh, sounds terrifying. It's it's supposed to be. It's a big title uh, for a big problem. So so we we have a lot to talk about from digital world wars to real world wars to State Department, Hillary Clinton, Rex Tillerson, and so on and so forth. Um, but let's let me just ask you just a very simple question: Are we all going to die soon in some sort of like cataclysmic event? Can you kind of just let me know if I should be moving to Canada right now? Like, what's <laughs> what? Where should I go, and what should I do, and, and where are we in the world today? As someone who knows the ins and out of the State Department. Well, I wish we were in a better place, and I wish I had a better answer. I do think that we're on sort of a precipice of, you know, there's, there's, uh, well, you know, the things I talk about in the book, I mean, we are, you know, we're behind the curve when it comes to sort of this information battlefield. Obviously, you know, with all the big issues in North Korea and, you know, the big tectonic issues in the Middle East, I mean, things are, things are, we're teetering in a place where um, we've doubled down on a couple things which might come back to bite us. So, What, what are the things we doubled down on? Well, I think that, you know, the, the escalation of rhetoric with North Korea, um, you know, uh, while you I mean understand... like Trump tweeting and... Well, I think that we've had this containment plus policy um, and that's, you know, and so now, you know, we have like three-star generals at PACOM over in Hawaii who are doing war gaming. And so, you know, there's people, we're, we're closer than a lot of people would want to think. Being closer to some sort of cataclysmic event with North Korea? Or... Yeah, if there's a spark. Right. If there's some spark somewhere, but, but, this, this things could turn it in a hurry. But do you th- do, now? Do you think? Look, I think both Kim Jong Un and and Donald Trump are are, are very emotional, uh, unstable people. But I think at the end of the day, maybe this is me, me being um, uh, hopeful. At the end of the day, they know that there's a there, there's a no win situation, especially Kim Jong Un. Like he. If he fires one missile, blows up L.A. or Seattle or whatever, um, that's it. It's game over, right? So right. isn't that the deterrent for the spark, or or am I just being too hopeful? No, there, no there, that's a huge deterrent. Um, you know, I just think that there's, you know, there's a lot of 
when you look at the world stage, there's a lot of folks that, you know, um, see this opening to sort of, you know, where the U.S., uh, where they want, they have other reasons to sort of look at proxy wars, you know, and they want to take advantage of this. So while our attention is sort of, it's like the eye of Sauron, like we're, we're sort of focused on, on one thing right now in North Korea, others, and I talk about this information battlefield, are planning and, and organizing and getting ahead in a way that we're sort of left behind. So recently, uh, a couple months ago, a month ago, uh, Vladimir Putin said, you know, whoever owns artificial intelligence will own, will own the world. Um, do you think that's him saying, you know, the information, the, the war of the future is, is a digital one? Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. So what does that look like? Well, it looks at, you know, these new tools. I'll give you an example. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're, I'll give you the best example I think of is like a couple of weeks ago. So we had testimony, the tech companies were there, Google, Facebook, um, uh, you know, uh, Twitter were all testifying. And we're talking about sort of taking content down, censorship. Well, as we're talking about that, you know, sort of ISIS 3.0 is already sort of moving ahead. Um, and these groups are moving ahead using technology that's not really, that a lot of people don't know about. And they're using machine learning, they're using AI, they're using Wait, things. ISIS is using machine learning? Well, ISIS 3.0, a group called Tehrir al-Sham, uh, which a lot, again, a lot of people don't know, but it's very reminiscent of, you go back to 2014, if I mentioned to you ISIS, you're like, ICE what? Mm. Uh, and we didn't know what the heck it was. And we thought, you know, Ah, it's a bunch of ragtag folks that are coming out of the vacuum in Iraq. No big deal. Um, and so we're still talking about them. That was a $200 billion mistake. So I think about now, we have these new groups on the horizon, um, and how can we get ahead of them? And so what are some of the things that they're doing that people are not aware of? Well, one is they're smart about audience segmentation. So they know, they're saying one thing to one audience and something very different. I tell you a story. So I... I I spent a lot of time traveling, and I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. So I lived for about nine years in South Asia. I lived a number of years, eight-plus years in the Middle East, where I did my doctoral work. And over the last two years, I spent a lot of time on the road. And so I was talking to this young defector uh, last year in Dubai who had joined ISIS um, for all the wrong reasons, but had sort of found his way out of it, is in Dubai in kind of this halfway place. Um, um, and he was sort of you know, he was, he was, he was dealing with sort of, how do I go back to my family? But, you know, they had sort of disowned him. And so I sat down with him and we'll call him Arshid right now for, for our talk here. So Arshid was like, basically, I was like, you know, I'm trying to make sense of why it is that a young guy with so much ahead of him, very well educated, why he'd picked up and bought a ticket to go to Syria. And so early on in the interview, um, because I built this sort of, I wanted to build this unique database of defectors, uh, because I wanted to hear their stories. I asked him, well, in one word, describe to me what is ISIS to you, you know? And I was, I was ready to start actually writing down what I thought, which is, mean you would decide, dark, horrific, horrendous, murderers, you know, all these kind of words that come to mind when we think of the hateful ideology and the hateful group behind all these gruesome murders. And he started off on a very different track, which kind of shocked me. What I, was his track? Well, he said to me things like trustworthy, you know? He said identity, belonging, um, and I started almost not even writing these down because I, I just wanted to make sure. I said, sorry, can you go back over again? Make sure I'm understanding, you know. And I speak some Arabic, and I was understanding what he was saying. But we went back over, and that's exactly what he said. And it, the disconnect was sort of mind-boggling to me. So I sort of went back and said, well, how could you, how could you think of those things? You know, they don't, that's not what we see in here. And what I realized, actually, is that, you know, what's, what makes ISIS smart is that they're, they're doing audience segmentation. So they're messaging in English to me and you, 
out mm-hmm. here and they have a certain, you know, they're showing the head beheadings and, you know, they're showing all these like very gruesome Game of Thrones type videos. And yet to people like Arshad, they're showing them like Nutella and kittens and they're showing them like a club med for foreign fighters <laughs> and they're showing them. And actually when I went through the research and I read the propaganda in Arabic, um, um, it was 80% positive. So they're talking about governance and they're talking about how they're building some aspirational, you know, uh, ecosystem for young people where you can come and get married and you can come and be free and you can be identity can be like sort of blossoming. And so I realized, you know, they're a little bit like, uh, you know, the way we think about the new Republic, you know, trying to become, you know, Buzzfeed. I mean, they are a niche sort of with a niche audience that was trying to go mass market. So, so when they are doing this, um, the, the the best tool they have is is social media, correct? Right. Well, it's one of the tools they have. What are the other tools? I mean, but it seems like if, without social media, they wouldn't exist in the with the expertise and ability to to market to the people they're trying to reach in the same way, right? Yeah. So they're interesting. They use like I think of multi platforms. I mean, they're like I almost think you got to think of them like an ad agency. They have somebody there storyboarding, um, you know, and they very, they have a decentralized structure, but but they use a range of things, you know. ISIS, for example, was, yeah, of course they were using social media, but they were using social media and moving across platforms from open source to more end-to-end encryption. So they would do things on Twitter and Facebook, but then move you to sort of, you know, they'd move you to Telegram and other apps where they would get more operational details or more one-on-one. But then they also had, you know, they had flyers and they had billboards and they had little kiosks um, where they had in, in places. And they realized... What a lot of people understand is that all radicalization is local. Um, and so they weren't trying to go to the mass masses. They mm. were actually reaching out to vulnerable at-risk youth um, because they understood that's the best way to recruit. So in this book, you, you kind of go through a lot of all the, the terrible, terrifying things that have happened, will happen, and, and so on and so forth. What's the scariest to you? Well, to me, the scariest is that we're – so I would posit this. That, you know, ISIS, in a lot of ways, has has become more disaggregated. Yes, they're being run off the physical battlefield. But there's a lot of copycats. There's a lot of people that are watching what worked with ISIS and what didn't. And the next iteration of ISIS is a group. ISIS was really hung up on a sort of a caliphate on sort of governing territory. that They thought that was their game changer. That was something that made them different than Al-Qaeda and other groups, was that they had territory that they loved it when we would call them, me and you would call them a state, um, because that sort of reinforces this idea that they were something. Um, but these new groups that are coming up, in a lot of ways, are not interested in physical territory at all. They're actually interested in a sort of a global, virtual community that that this sort of virtual ecosystem that they've created. And they have no interest of actually governing territory and they have no interest of recruiting people to go get up and buy a ticket to go somewhere. Um, and so this, in this sort of decentralized, you know, uh, type of uh, terror group, they want to use technology to shut down electric grids and they want to use technology to do a lot of the cyber hacking, to steal intellectual property. And they want to use things um, to break into national security systems. So, these groups now have bigger aims than just sort of governing a town in, you know, southwest Syria. And, and can they pull it off? And what, what, I guess there's two parts to this question. Is one, you know, can they pull off shutting down the electrical grid? Is this, is this something at the State Department that people are talking about and preparing for? 
And I think the other thing is, is well, what, what is the eventual goal? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, you know, I think it's a little, it's somewhat on radar, people's radars. And part of why I wrote this book was to get it squarely on people's radar screens. Because one thing that we've learned before is that we were caught behind the curve. You know, for example, you know, the U.S. Cyber Command at the Defense Department just recently became a full unified command. They weren't even, they could not even carry out end-to-end operations. I mean, we didn't even consider that a full command up until <clears throat> probably about a month ago, why uh, a few months it take, ago. Why? Because I think, you know, we, we, we still govern things, we think, in terms of physical territories. We have a command that covers Southeast Asia. We have a command that covers Africa. We're thinking in terms of borders, and right. whereas our enemies are thinking in terms of the just globally. Yeah, they don't have a bricks and mortar sort of country policy. It sounds, it's so funny because it sounds so similar to like, as you mentioned, like BuzzFeed taking on the New York Times or something like that or traditional media um, uh, where you had these brick and mortar yeah. kind of experiences that were kind of stuck in there, the rut of the thing that they've done for, for, for decades. And then you have uh, you have these up and comers that don't, that don't think like that. And exactly. It sounds like it's the same with kind of terrorism around the world. Exactly. I mean, they have they're they're thinking about it like a lot of as you said, technical tech companies and startups, and they've thought there's no borders in this information battlefield, and they've built an ecosystem. So that's what's interesting too. So you know, we're we're focused a lot on censorship. So that that to me is there's a, there's a heavy focus on censorship. But at the end of the day, I think this is a content war. This is not just about censorship. Censorship's a piece of it. Yes, and. We get YouTube's getting better. They can remove videos now in less than ninety seconds in some ways. And yes, machine learning will be important. But there's a content war, you know. And I give you an example. You know, oftentimes when again I'm traveling in the Middle East or I'm traveling, you know, when I'm in the region, I'll say, "Who's the number one person on Twitter in the Middle East?" Just give a wild guess, right? What do you uh, think? Uh, you? <laughs> I wish. I'm hoping after this yeah, conversation, yeah, yeah, I'll be near be... to that goal. <clears throat> no, who is it? Um, well, so it's it's not King Abdullah, who a lot of people guess, a politician. It's not some actress or actor. It's not a musician. It's a person called Mohammed al-Arafi, who is an extremist cleric based in Saudi Arabia. And What does he tweet about? Well, he tweets about, um, he tweets a very sort of, a very, I would say, harsh version and sort of perverted version of religion. He uses a lot of symbolism, but he's probably also the single biggest reason why young people get up and go to Syria and Iraq. He has 20 million followers um, on Twitter. And he's not just on Twitter, he's on Snap. He's on all these other platforms. And so, but you would have never hear his name here. If you talk about key influencers, here's somebody who has perfected the use of audience segmentation He's sitting in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, I don't want to have a broad brush. A lot of clerics are on the front lines fighting extremism, and they, and they are a key partner in this fact. In fact, the vast majority are. But I'm just telling you that this person has outside influence. And, and so do you think that should Twitter ban someone like that uh, from being on the platform? Should Snapchat? They can't. They can't. And the reason is because he doesn't violate their terms of service. So, you know, as I saw your book here on Robert Frost— this is what tells you how sophisticated they're getting. Arafi uh, tweeted out um, a picture of a visual. He, does, he visually tells a narrative in smart ways. So he'll do things where he'll, you know, he put out this, you know, the road not taken for Robert Frost. He did a picture of that, sort of visual picture of that poem, sort of hinting to young people that, well, there's another road that can be taken, and that road is a path to success. 
sort of standing up and fighting for your your community and getting up and doing the right thing because you you know I try to understand why is it young people join and you know they they want to do something it's kind of like you know we think about the dare campaign just say no to mm-hmm. drugs the sort of either ingenious or a hugely fallible drug campaign that failed here in the US young people want to do something and they want to clean, clear change narrative and he's given it to them he's like here here's your sort of peace version of peace corps you can get up and go do this, and you're getting rid of this dictator named Assad. And so he's giving a clear change. He shows this Robert Frost poem, and, and then he'll do things where he'll show a bushel of apples. He's like, wow, things are bountiful. He just says things are bountiful. It doesn't say the caliphate, but everybody knows what he means. What he means yeah, and again, yeah. Twitter, Twitter can't take him off because he's, <clears throat> he's innocuous in that way. So my point is that censorship plays a role, but you got people like him that are rising, that are using this, building an ecosystem. And, uh, and the fanboys love him. The fanboys love him. Terrifying. Um, <clears throat> okay, so you, uh, um, you were at the State Department for nine years, yes. right? Uh, under Clinton, Kerry, and, and Secretary and Tillerson. Tillerson. That's right. Uh, um, tell us some like terrifying, fun, crazy stories uh, of that time. Like, what, what's, what are a couple of things that stand out in your mind? Well, one thing I would stand out is that we oftentimes for folks that are, uh, you know, people that are, are that are, are watchers of the State Department or people that are just American citizens, they don't realize at what risk um, our senior officials put themselves in when they travel abroad. So, so, for example, because we don't talk about this, obviously, with the tragedy in Libya and Benghazi, you know, that brought it to, to the fore. But a lot of people don't realize like the kind of assassination attempts um, because we don't talk about them uh, publicly, uh, the threat that these officials go through. So whether in the Iraq, I used to serve in Pakistan. I spent time in Afghanistan. I also lived there before I came to State Department. It's pretty dangerous. And, and you know, it's pretty jarring having to talk to a senior principal saying, hey, oh, by the way, this might be your last speech. Did, did, you, did you have any experiences living in Pakistan, Afghanistan, where you had you know, moments where, you know, things went Harry or oh so so many so many like what what is it like I mean are you watching your back every five feet are you do you, are you in an armored car everywhere you go do you have like uh, people you know do you have a gun like what what is it what is it really like not on the Hollywood version but the real version of yeah what? no it's it's to some extent you sort of have to get yourself you have to almost um, lull yourself into some false sense of security otherwise. You'll be paralyzed and you won't do anything. But I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you this sort of, I remember a few years back, I was in Islamabad. So I was in a place called F63 and it's where I used to live. It was kind of in the center of town. Islamabad's the capital of Pakistan. And I was having lunch at this nice little cafe that might not be too different than what we find over here on Pico Boulevard. And it was a small little eatery and I'm having lunch. A lot of people will come through, a lot of your sort of who's who of, you know, politicians, diplomats, people in the NGO community. So I'm having lunch and I just leave, uh, get into my car. At that time you could still drive. Um, and I have to say I was speeding back to the embassy and I was on, I was doing something with my Blackberry probably, you know, as, as often it is at the embassy, you think you're more important than you actually are. And, you know, some meeting that I can't remember now. And I hit this massive traffic jam and I'm standing there. Five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, nothing happening. And finally, I get out of my car, and I'm like, I'm, you know, my Urdu is pretty good, and I'm asking, what's going on? So someone finally tells me is that where I was having lunch, literally right next to where I was having lunch, the former governor of Punjab, 
who Punjab's the largest province in Pakistan. So he's like, you know, a big business person. He was a governor of this biggest province in Pakistan, almost a country of 200 million people. He had just been gunned down. He'd been shot 23 times by somebody of his security detail. Hmm. And Solman Tassir, and I knew him. I knew his family very well. I had interviewed him a number of times over the years. So it was shocking to me personally because it's somebody that, you know, you know, and I lost so many friends and people that I knew well. Um, and, you know, what was interesting was that he had been targeted um, sort of online. So he, for a while now, people had sort, of, had sort of ignored it. He had been, people had sent, the Taliban had, they hated him because he spoke out about minority rights. He spoke out about, uh, you know, women's rights. And so a lot of people felt like he's an antithesis to what they wanted to see in Pakistan. And they had sent him virtual beheadings, but he ignored them, right? He, and there was these communities that sort of were trying to take his clips and put it online to show him saying something that he didn't to really try to get people um, to sort of get them motivated and passionate. And actually, the, the, one of his bodyguards actually ended up seeing something online and hearing something in a, in a Friday sermon that felt that made him compelled to do this. And there's this word in Arabic called munafik, which is a very strong word. It means like hypocrites, even stronger. It means like traitor. And so he had heard this word being said about him, and he said, hey, I'm going to take the law in my own hands. I think I'll be a hero. And so it's things like that that, that struck. And I'll tell you, Nick, I was at the funeral uh, you know, a few days later, and it was probably about 20 or 30 people. And we were waiting, you know, waiting for somebody to come start it, and about 20 minutes go by. Nothing's happening, and I'm like, gosh, what's going on here? We're just hanging out. There's, you know, it's a very short ceremony uh, to do the funeral procession. And nobody's doing anything. And I realized nobody was going up. They, they, no religious leader was going up. Because they were so, uh, they so believed this guy was a bad guy? Well, they were scared about what if they uh, are the ones. What would happen to them? Because in the country, there was this huge debate after this killing. Was this guy a hero? Or was this guy, did this guy do something grossly wrong? And there were actually protests of thousands of people, 20,000, 30,000 people in the streets saying, hey, this guy's a hero. He did the right thing, the bodyguard. And then some people saying, no, no, no. What he did was like, how you can't take the law into your own hands and just do this. What happened to the bodyguard? So this is where it gets even more fascinating. He, he gets showered with rose petals as he goes to jail. Uh, when he turned, obviously he admits guilt. The judge that initially um, sentences him, he admits to doing it, he gets sentenced uh, to uh, uh, penalty by death. The judge has to go into hiding because they got death threats um, wow. in that case. Finally, um, the, it, the court, it goes up to the Pakistani Supreme Court, and he actually, you know, he actually ends up getting the death penalty um, recently, so he finally was put to death. Now, after his death, now, I told you about when I was there for the funeral for Solomon Tassir, about 30 people, and we couldn't find a religious leader to sort of oversee that. Well, at this person's funeral, you had thousands. You had thousands, I think 30, 40,000 people at least in different cities that came out to honor him. And so it just shows you kind of the discussions that are going on in the country. And, and what do you do when you can't find, what do you think they did when you can't find a religious leader? What happened? <clears throat> they probably, I don't know what happened. So literally, somebody from the front row, someone like me and you, got up and, as a layperson, led that funeral procession because they literally no no religious leader wanted to do it. So is this a so this is like a larger question, I think. But is this you know 
Look, if a lot of people in this country uh, do not like certain leaders in this country, I mean, and people that aren't even leaders, people that are former leaders in this country. Um, but I don't, but if, if someone were shot or assassinated or something like that, as much as there is people despise these people they i don't think you would see people in the streets claiming the person who did it is a hero and so on and so forth um maybe i'm just being naive by saying that but i i don't uh um i think that we still there's there's even the way certain people feel about about our leaders um there's still a level of well they're still a human being at the end of the day um how is it is it religious or cultural or, or how is it that that in that country, the people, tens of thousands of people can, can go into the streets thinking this person is a hero for killing someone for viewpoints that they don't agree with. Yeah, you know, I think, well, we're lucky in that we have, obviously, you know, the arena, the freedom of speech. I mean, sometimes we don't realize how valuable that is because a lot of times, <clears throat> even though you may have a lot of hateful rhetoric on all sides, the fact that you can actually have that dissipates a lot of this sort of, can a lot of this... Uh, negativity that can come out of it, right? So a lot of times it's when you have censorship and you have people saying, well, you can't say this, you can't say that, that people oftentimes, these pockets foment. Although I'll say here too, I mean, in hyper-partisanship, I'm not sure, you know, you, you wouldn't get people that are pretty close to wanting to hurt people on any side of an argument because of how, where things are going. I do think that, you know, in a place like Pakistan is that they are having these big public debates about, you know, what is it that the identity of the country stands for, right? What is it that this country, you know, you know, there's different forces and it's, and, it, and we don't realize it's kind of a powder keg. So, you know, even let's say I take the Salman Tassir. I was having lunch with, um, I was having lunch with a family that I had gotten to know in, in Lahore, which is another big city. It's one of their kind of their cultural capitals. And, uh, this is an upper-class family, middle-upper-class family. The father was a very well-known public figure, and his son had gone to the best schools and would end up going to school here in the U.S. Uh, he, had gone to, he had come abroad to college. His, his son was visiting during sort of break uh, was in college. And they were talking about this, what happened with Salman Tassir over dinner. And um, I'm sitting there, and you know, the, the dad says to his son, he's like, gosh, can you believe that? Salman Tassir, who the family knew. And they said, you know, can you believe that you know, this happened. I mean, where's our country going? And his son was quiet, looks up at his dad, and he says, Dad, but did you ever think that maybe he deserved to die? <laughs> and his dad was so shocked because he had sent his son to the yeah. best schools and he had sent him abroad. And so this debate is going on. And I think that um, for a lot of people, you know, it's just that there's all these forces. Um, and I don't think it's religious or, or cultural necessarily. I just think that if you realize the history in Pakistan is still very new, and they're struggling, they've, they've actually never had an elected civilian government finish their term, ever. So let, let me ask you a, um, a few questions about a few different countries. Um, and, you know, you can do short, short answers, long answers, whatever you want, but maybe I'll just bounce around to a few. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, when you read in the news today uh, and you hear about the countries that are could potentially be most harmful to the United States, um, what, where, where you lie in this. So, so Russia is, you know, they are, of course, doing lots of terrible things with our democracy through social media and so on and so forth. Um, uh, is, it, is it something, you know, is it on the top of the list uh, of countries that we should be 
worried about? I think so, absolutely. I think they're public enemy almost number one. Number I mean, they're, one. they're close to the top. I mean, and the reason is, is because <clears throat> they have, they're so focused in their, in their campaigns against the U.S. I mean, in terms of disrupting U.S. hegemony in different places. So, you know, we know of RT and Sputnik, um, but, you know, what we forget is that there's a huge Russian public broadcasting um, that's spreading disinformation in Russia, right, and fomenting this among Russians. I mean, that's a, if you look at RT and Sputnik, that's very small compared to what they're doing uh, to the Russian population. And, and, and I think they're sophisticated about it. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the Russians in a lot of ways, um, they see places, you know, whether it's Afghanistan, where they can disrupt uh, U.S. Uh, hurt U.S. interests, or a place like Syria, um, where they can play kingmaker, um, and they're going to try to extract things from us. So I would say Russia is near the top of the list. Um, North Korea. North Korea has, to me, has always been, um, you know, they've they've been a, a a problem, a thorn in the side, you know, for a long time. It's not new. Um, the, the, the issue in North Korea is that you have essentially a military that is subservient to, you know, a sort of a, a crazy dictator. And they are, they are, they're not risk averse um, in the way that we would, we, you know, in the sort of rationality you'd want. Now, China and others have, have played a helpful role in trying to contain their ambitions. Um, and I think at, where it's at now is that in some ways, you know, this is kind of the, what I think of inside-outside negotiations. They want a way to save face where they can get some extract, something that they can go back to, right? And so a lot of that happens behind closed doors in terms of quiet diplomacy. What is it those conversations that can bear out? Uh, because both sides obviously are not budging. And so I would say they're, they're – um, I wouldn't say they're an ex- existential threat to the U.S. because I think that we would, we would intercept any long-range ballistic missiles, but – in terms of the collateral damage, I mean, that's that's World War Three. What do you mean that's World War Three? You know, you have 20 million people around Seoul. Yeah. Uh, you have one of our largest bases there, U.S. military bases there. Any kind of war gaming that you look at there, you know, you're having catastrophic, you know, civilians' deaths. You have... Um, you have something akin to Afghanistan, sorry, Pakistan and India, uh, where I also think is, is is not high on people's radar screens, but should be because that's a huge powder keg in terms of you know both countries having nuclear power, um, having huge issues, and then you have the spark you know in these extremist groups on both sides. Well, so that was my next question. You know, Pakistan, India, is that something that you know? I think. After 9-11, if I'd have asked you that question, you would have said public enemy number one, yeah. uh, and Russia probably would have been not even on the list. Yeah. Um, is, is Are those countries still something that we should be worried about? Absolutely. And, and I think the thing I think about with Pakistan and India is that, you know, that still keeps me up at night. That's one of the places that really keeps me up at night because we've taken our eye off the ball. It's a little bit like Charlie Wilson's war. And yet, you know, think about this. This, this statistic blows my mind. The Taliban today cl- controls over 40% of the country. You wow. know, we've been there for how many years? Since 2000, 2001, in terms of the war on terror. And yet they control more of the country than they did after all the energy and money that we poured into that country. And they're growing. If I, They're a growth stock in, in Afghanistan. And so, you know, even a place like Helmand, where I've, I've spent places, and I'm writing about this actually uh, a lot, is that there's a there's a 150 billion dollar industry that comes 85% of the world's heroin comes from one province in Afghanistan 
And that funds a lot of things. We have this opioid crisis here in the U.S. And there's unintended consequences of what's getting produced there and what gets sent here via Europe. So to me, th that country, there's a lot of, lot of importance of why we should not disengage. So I guess the headline is, don't disengage with Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, continue to try to form strategic partnerships there. Because there, that to me is how we also keep ourselves safe and also we build stability in South Asia. So, so listening to you say this, these, you know, talk about these, and I could keep going with China and other places, but um, it seems to me that, um, that we should be, you know, increasing our diplomacy to try to um, uh, ensure these kinds of things don't, you know, spark into, into World War III. Um, but yet, under the current administration, it, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but the State Department is smaller, uh, is less effective, uh, less involved. Um, uh, so is our diplomacy around the world, other than Donald Trump's Twitter account. Uh, um, is this making it worse? Like, what's the what, what's going on behind closed doors? Like, can you give us some insight into the State Department over the last year while you were there? I think we need to double down on diplomacy. You know, diplomacy is not only our best investment, but it's probably our best bet to keep us safe over the long run. Does and Rex Tillerson know that? I think that that Secretary Tillerson and others, I think they they recognize the importance and whether they're stretched thin in terms of actually carrying it out, I mean, and empowering those that work for them. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the stuff that bears itself out. I mean, we forget that we have over 160 embassies and consulates around the world. They are startups in themselves. They are the outward-facing loafers on the, on the ground of our U.S. presence in all these countries. And to me, you know, I think if you think back to the 1940s and – I when, remember them well. I, I figured both <laughs> me and you with all our gray hair between us, we, yeah. could, we, could, we probably could add up to that. The Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. If you think about the collection of talent we sort of, that, we, that we put into sort of you know, the race to the bomb – I think we need our own version of a Manhattan Project today um, to collect, you know, not only the best talent, um, and if you think about this diplomacy, but, you know, getting, if you think about this information battlefield, which is the new front for diplomacy, is, is really, is, is thinking about how do we as Americans use these new tools to sort of, you know, in terms of outward facing. So whether it's the hundreds of young Malalas and the stories, but how do we project both the American story, but the American values? So, you, we have to use this battlefield in a way that we haven't before, and we're still stuck in this sort of 20-year-old model. So do you, so you think that there should be a, a Manhattan Project for cyber warfare or for cyber security? I mean, what, for Yeah, what? I mean, I think of it as sort of, you know, there's a, there's a, if you think of a continuum, diplomacy being on one end and sort of, you know, cyber warfare on the other end, there is... I think we need to make a huge investment both in talent, and we have the talent. I mean, we have Silicon Valley. But they're all Valley. working at Facebook and and making a hundred million dollars a year, and 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 you know saving the world with with banner ads. I mean, like, w how are you going to get that talent to, to to to? It's it's like they're making it. The talent is making it worse <laughs> right now. I mean. Well, you know, I don't, maybe I'm a cautious optimist about, you know, but I think, and I've seen this time and again, I've seen people volunteer. This is a strong volunteerism among Americans, and especially folks from the tech sector, people from MIT, Caltech, and Stanford, they want to help. They're just looking for a place where they can plug into. And I have had a lot of people say, look, I never got to serve in Vietnam. I never got to serve, but I want to serve behind the flag. And, and, and it's contagious, serving behind the flag. I mean, I spent so long there because 
while there may be inside things at DC and at the State Department here, you know, domestically, you see the power of the flag. You see the power of serving as an American diplomat when you're out in the field. And uh, but is the State Department working on something like this? Are they trying to get you know? Are they are they working on a Manhattan Project for the? For you know the future, or or is it just something that you hope will happen one day? Or can you- no, I don't think they're working on it. Um, and but I do. That my goal now is to try to help mobilize and concentrate attention on you know this issue because I think this is to me. I don't want to get stuck looking back. Me and you having another conversation in three years, saying, "Hey, Nick, remember when we talked about Tahrir al-Sham and we talked about AI and machine learning, and you know we're still using like open source software to do our diplomacy." I mean, we have to be a step ahead. We have to learn how to fail fast. Um, you know, even on social media for our diplomats. I talk about in my book the one nine ninety model. One percent of people create content; they're key influencers. Nine percent share content, um, and ninety percent are passive consumers. And we have to mobilize that ninety percent if we want to win this war. Okay, so so let's just say let's fast forward um, uh, a few years. Um, what does World War Three look like? I mean, you've you have you have something in your book about this that there won't be any Navy SEALs; they'll be obsolete in a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're clearly not going to have military on the battlefield. You know, with horses shooting each other. Um, what does it look like? Is it is it just is it literally groups of people behind computers shutting down power grids and society falling into chaos as a result? Or well, a lot of it is going to be, it's almost like part science fiction, part wild, wild west in the sense that they're going to be, you're going to have artificial intelligence in terms of bots and you're going to have UAVs on manned vehicles that are, are going to be sort of conducting on the front lines. You're not going to have sort of foot soldiers. You're going to have people trying to, you know, shut down both electric systems, whether it's grids or whether it's security systems in terms of our sat locators. You're going to have groups that are going to have what I call black swan events, meaning that with little investment, something like that happened in New York with a truck and that horrendous Halloween terror attack, you have something that's low cost, but the ROI, the return on investment is very high in terms of them trying to both shut down or create sort of fear. And so if you take that and you scale it up about some sort of mass casualty type of incident that someone can pull off in a low tech way, um, combine that with you know, some of these new, some of the new technology in terms of operational planning that keeps it hard to detect. We have to have, we're going to have to have a more nimble, uh, more highly, much more technologically savvy kind of approach, to, you know, that's not just by border or country to country. Okay, so one of the potential outcomes uh, in the future is that, you know, the power grid does get turned off. Mm-hmm. Um is this something you guys looked at at the State Department? Is this something that, that, you know, from the research I've done into it, it doesn't seem like we're very prepared for a situation like that. Yes, there are billionaires that will end up in their bunkers. Um, there are uh, places in mountains for the president and, uh, you know, heads of state and so on and so forth. Um, but not for us. Uh, what happens? Well, I think in a lot of ways, you know, hell breaks loose in some ways because we are, we're facing, you know, we're right now kind of, we're thinking a lot of our planning right now is sort of contingency planning is sort of thinking six months out, a year out. And I I would assume 
our people at DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and others are looking into these these types of issues. But whether or not they have the resources to sort of carry it out, I mean, they're stretched thin dealing with some of the domestic hurricanes and some of the, 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 the natural disasters that have stretched us thin. But it's kind of a luxury to be able to, you know, uh, to think about some of these, you know, you think about war planning, but so necessary. And to me, it's, again, we need we need our version of the high techs Cyber seals. We need people. Cyber that, seals. We need folks that are, you know, um, that you know, that played high school varsity football, uh, but also, you know, know how to do hand combat, but also went to MIT, Caltech, and Stanford. And in a lot of ways, that to me is going to be the front end of this sort of, you know, protecting America. Oh my God, this is stressing me out. <clears throat> do we have any uplifting things we can talk about? I was going to talk about Malala, but that's already, you know, she's, she's already uplifting. But I think in a lot of ways, we have a blueprint. We have a blueprint for how to win this, uh, win this new war. We have the technology. We actually have, if you think of like Empire Strikes Back, yeah. I mean, we, we have an Empire Strikes we Back. We have an Empire up. Strikes Back. That should be the second movie, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so my point is that we actually have the blueprint of how to do this. We have data of actually what works on this information battlefield. We have the technology, we have the resources, we have a collective action problem. Okay, but let me let me let me stop you for a second. We have a collective action problem, but we have a collective action problem at this top. I don't believe that Donald Trump is capable of comprehending the possibilities of what cyber warfare can uh, can can do to this country. Um, isn't isn't that the bigger problem? It's not necessarily the lack of digital Navy SEALs, but it's it's that from the top they don't see it as a problem. I mean, I, I remember when Trump first won um, uh, a year ago, um, uh, and it was actually a year ago this week that he started going around to all the news organizations and like patting himself mm-hmm. on the back and saying, we're going to have a great relationship and look how that turned out. Um, but anyway, and but someone said to him in one of these meetings, um, do you do you worry about you know, driverless cars and things like that taking millions of jobs. And he was like, no, it's never going to happen. It's hundreds, hundreds of years away. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you could go to a car, to Volvo today <laughs> and get a car that can drive itself. I mean, it's like we are we are just a, a few years away from, from the majority of cars on the road being driverless. And yet this, this is the leadership from above. Like, doesn't, isn't that the same for the world, for the next world war that we need to be worrying about? You know, I think that in a lot of ways, I go back to sort of what is at the tip of the spear. And the tip of the spear are, you know, both ambassadors out in the field. There are our, our, our heads of command out at UCOM, which is in Europe, or PACOM in Hawaii, and people that serve, you know, both, whether it's at DOD or intelligence services or a State Department. And I think that the key is that you know, is taking out some of the, there's, there's veto players. What I think of is that there's always, you know, the, the one thing I learned about in government, there's always more people that can say no to something than can say yes. And so as a, as a government, how do we mobilize and get a lot of the talent that, by the way, is sitting on the sidelines? This is the private sector. These are the people that want to volunteer. To me, that's the nexus of how we protect ourselves. And there are a lot of smart people that recognize this, but as I said, we have a free rider problem. And so, you know, we have a tragedy of the commons. I'm a student of game theory. And so, you know, how do we mobilize um, these people on the sidelines that want to come in? How do we plug them in? To me, that's a great challenge of our time. Okay. So one of the things that you've talked about in your book and you, and you talked about here today is, is, is some of these potentially negative, d- devastating things that could happen. Um, but what I think that, I worry about 
more um, than Russia and you know the U.S. you know getting into a world war. I do worry about North Korea, but is is someone like let's just say China, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, or let's just say, let's actually let's just take your cleric, for example, right, yeah. who has um, access to. Uh, tens of millions of dollars, or maybe not even just a few million dollars, who decides, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, rather than train these fighters that I, I'm going to have a really hard time getting into the United States, uh, I'm going to uh, build uh, a million dollars worth of drones that have little explosives on them or something like that. And we're going to fly those into the United States and blow things up. Uh, and, you know, why do you need suicide bombers when you have suicide drones? Um is there a way to stop? And 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 the, and the thing that's so that's so crazy about this is that you know if you wanted to build a nuclear bomb, I mean you've seen what North Korea has gone through over decades trying to do this, and Iran and so on and so forth. Like it's fucking hard, right? right? It is not hard to strap C four to a, a drone and fly it into something and you know press a button. Um, it, what is there a way to stop one crazy person from causing massive, massive damage using technologies in the future, um, or, or is, is there not? The answer is yes. I mean, there is a way to do, stop this. And, and I, I, you know, if you think about uh, one of my favorite authors, Nicholas Taleb, in terms of when he talks about black swan, but how do you prepare for a black swan? It's something that we think won't happen, can't happen, you know, that's so, so out there as an outlier. And, you know, what I talk about in the book a little bit is swarm theory. So there's a way to, you can't have a highly centralized response. It has to be a decentralized response of enabling all these different things because you're not sure where this existential threat come, might come from. So let's take China or Russia or some of the, as you mentioned, maybe a cleric, is that you have to, you know, you have to enable multi-systems to sort of sort of attack where the focal point's going to be, where they're going to try to come from. And we have the technology that can detect it. And in fact, there's some interesting um, studies out there where you look at, look, a lot of this new technology that you're talking about, it doesn't come under Title 10 or Title 50. So it doesn't actually fit What are squarely. Title 10 and Title 50? So that talks about, you know, that governs our drones uh, attacks and whether that violates mm-hmm. sovereignty. Um, you know, there's still outstanding questions in international kind of you know, I'd say legal architecture is that, hey, if we launch a virus against this, is that considered an act of war? You'll get different answers when you talk to different people. So this field is so brand new. So I actually think there's a lot of upside for us, meaning as the U.S., to respond to this. But I absolutely think there's a way to do it. And I think there's part of it is I go back to that Manhattan Project idea. It's we have to mobilize and collect talent and get somebody to own sort of think somebody needs to live and breathe. Their job every day when they get up is to protect and to sort of be ahead of the curve. And that, to me, is, is the key. Uh, that pro- person's probably working at Facebook right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, getting free snacks. Uh, That's right. And enjoying the massages. Uh, so last few questions before, before we let you go. Um, uh, so you were at the State Department um, uh, from uh, through Clinton, Kerry, um, uh, Tillerson. Um what how, did they did they lead differently when it came to these kinds of issues these like digital warfare issues did they have different thought processes about what was important and what wasn't i think that there was you know there was different approaches to you know to what this cyber world looks like and 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 it's so new i think in a lot of ways that we still are still grappling with that in government so for example if you take something like 
it used to be called the Center for Strategic Counter Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications. Great name, I can't even remember it. Um, that used to be located State Department. They had a budget of like five million dollars to fight information propaganda, um, and they tried to do a lot with what their budget was. But look, there's still five million dollars, and if you think about it, the U.S. military band budget is four hundred million dollars. So you know, I mean, you can do the math there in terms of like you yeah. know, good music or keeping us safe. <laughs> and so to me, it's that there is now a recognition, more of a recognition. I mean, we finally now have the U.S. Cyber Command. But to me, it's this is this is the key: is that more than even approaches uh, leadership styles, it is enabling exactly smart people that can solve this using swarm theory and that can actually, we can, they can be allowed to experiment, to fail fast, um, and sort of make sure that on the tips of our, of our front lines out in these areas, because really this is not sitting behind computers somewhere here in Virginia. This is going to be sitting in Amman. This is going to be sitting in Beijing. It's going to be sitting over in Moscow. We need to be enabling folks both ourselves and others that are that are supporters and allies um, to sort of accomplish this. Um, <clears throat> what? Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. You may not want to answer it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, you you have people that were in the uh, uh, in the State Department under a very different leader, uh, President Obama, and and now under a very different leader. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could find two more different people on planet Earth, quite frankly, uh, in a leadership role. Uh, what was the feeling like inside the State Department when Trump was when Trump won? And what, what has it been like over the last nine months for people who stayed? Wait, is there a difference? Is there a difference? <laughs> um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a diplomatic sense, there is a difference. Uh, uh, we will definitely say that. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge, huge difference. I think... You know, when I talk to people, um, both at State Department, and I th again, when I think State Department, I think about in the field, you know, our, our loafers in the field, people on the ground. I mean, people are ready to serve. I mean, these are professionals. They will serve. They've served every administration, Republican and Democratic. They're not partisan, per se, in serving behind the flag. They just want, they want a mandate. They want to be empowered. They want to... They want to be out there, you know, there are folks that are out there almost like campaigning for America. Um, and so they just want to feel that they're part of, of something larger, that that's actually giving them authority. And a lot of folks, you know, they're, they, they, you know, we have a lot of positions that have gone unfilled, you know, at the State Department. And I think a lot of people, as it, as it speeds up, those positions will get people out there that can exert that leadership. But it's been tough. I think the transition's been tough. I mean, people are, you'll talk to different people. And it's, it's one of the things that reminds me of like when I used to be in Cairo, you know, when you ask people, hey, how are you doing? They'll say, great. They'll say, hey, how are you doing? Do you like Mubarak? They'll be like, great. And it's not until you ask them the fourth <laughs> time, hey, how are you doing? Do you like Mubarak? And then they'll be like, hey, can we grab coffee at this little <laughs> cafe off the side of the road? And then they tell you. So, yeah, yeah. so uh, we're still at the second, how are you doing? We still got we still got a few more how are you doings to go. Um, all right, so uh, last question. Um, um, you you know I'm sure people who have listened to this this far and haven't you know cowered away as I've wanted to in this conversation are um, thinking to themselves, well, what the fuck can I do to be prepared for these situations? You know, like I have a couple of earthquake supply kits in my basement. Um, you know, I, I have two-factor two authentication on my Twitter account. Like, what, what is it that, that you can do as a citizen 
to be prepared for, you know, some of the things that you talk about in your book? Well, I think there's a couple things we can do. There's, you know, one is just generally, you know, learning about sort of this information battlefield. So in fact, one of the things I do in my book and others have done this is that, you know, they try to, it's almost like a toolkit for families and for parents, because a lot of times, you know, as I have nieces and those that have kids, you know, you see them playing with technology and they're light years ahead in terms of becoming familiar with it. And a lot of times you don't even know what they're doing. Um, you don't know what they're using. And, and so many parents that I met with of people that got recruited or people that go into something that they shouldn't be doing, parents had no idea. So one is that I think raising awareness about what are these new tools? Like, for example, um, uh, you know, there's this new app that came about that a lot of people won't know. Everybody knows Snap. Um, everybody knows, you know, some of the more popular apps. But there's a there's an app that has become the number one or the top five download in over 25 countries and has now surpassed Snap in the United States. And it's called Saraha. It's a it's a yeah, Arabic, it's it's a you know Arabic uh, means honesty, um, but it's been starting to be used for bullying and, and you know and it was it's sort of like your old. It's got school. a lot of anonymity in it. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's almost like an old school high school bulletin board, um, and you know it can be used for good purposes about giving you feedback like Haroon, you know you know put more you know color your hair or you know you know your beard is too long or you know like come on don't roll up your don't you know don't roll up your uh, your uh, sleeves on your shirt but but it's also used for bullying and my point is is that there's a lot of interesting awareness that can be done then there's also data of what works how do you fight uh, propaganda well you don't do propaganda bit for bit sort of tit for tit you what you do actually is you you do something because that's backfire effect so what happens is that if i if isis says look Caliphate is bountiful. And you're like, no, Caliphate's not bountiful. Well, you've played into their narrative because in backfire effect, we reinforce their uh, predisposed belief. So what's actually more useful is, you know, giving an alternative pathway, you know, talking about stories of defectors, talking about voices of victims, the role of mothers. The data is very clear. So we have a playbook of how to strike back. Um, and that's point two. Point three, I think, is like, you know, thinking about Manhattan Project, getting talent, thinking about uh, ways of sort of, you know, uh, creating activities. And I think a lot of, again, a lot of these problems are highly local. And so you think about how do you get community leaders and religious leaders and everybody on board. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I probably did scare people. And if you're still listening, you might, you might be like, holy crap. Um, but, you know, the world's not going to an end. We just have to be better prepared and, uh, and we can stop World War III together. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Uh, my guest has been Haroon Ula, and the book is Digital World War, Islamists, Extremists, and the Fight for Cyber Supremacy. I am now going to go have a glass of whiskey to try to calm down a bit. I'll, thank I'll, you. I'll join you with some sprinkling water. Thanks for having me, Thank Nick. you so much. Thanks to my guest today, Haroon Ula. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. I'll see you all next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 